Welcome. This is Talking Joy, creating joy, inner peace, and authentic connections. My name is Pam Rotelli-Robertson, and I am founder of lifestyle brand Talking Joy. As a certified spiritual director, I have been leading groups with the power of words, the strength of positivity, and the gift of joy. During our time together, our focus will be on simple spiritual practices that can be applied to your everyday life with the wisdom and support of others. Talking Joy talks to help you realize your value. I am so glad you're here. Simple, joyful, fun. Let's get talking. Paula D'Arce, welcome to the Talking Joy podcast. Paula is someone who tends to the needs of the human heart. Um, She shows us ways to awaken to love. And she wrote a book that I read many years ago um, by the suggestion of a good pastor friend of mine. I said, do you have any good spiritual books? And and she said, ah, there's a great one. And she walked over to her shelf and she pulled off the gift of the red bird. It's a timeless book, I think. You know, I've gone back to it many times and I've recommended the book to many people over the years to uh, people that, you know, attend my small groups or say, hey, what are you reading? Or do you have any spiritual books? And so I've passed that same book along. I love that in the book, you're so transparent about your journey, about um, finding meaning after, you know, a lot of pain and loss that you suffered to continue to seek on your own, which I think is so important, and to teach others. Book, I think, is not just for people who are suffering a loss of a loved one, but it could be um, about anything, any kind of loss in our lives, you know, and about spiritual renewal. So welcome. Thank you for, for joining Thank you. Today. I'm excited. Thank you. Yeah. So would you say you've written other books that that book is uh, the, the most popular or that people come back to or ask you questions about? Yeah, I would say, yes, that people that know me often came through that door of of gift to the red bird and it's interesting because when i tried to write it after you know the experience had been completed and especially doing the the vision quest part that's at the end of the book the first few times it it wouldn't come i mean i took time aside i i went to a little hermitage i had my paper, I laid down my pens, everything was ready. And then I said to myself, well, I think I'll just go take a walk. And and that's what I did for eight days. I just walked and that happened a couple of times. And then one day I again was, was going someplace thinking I was just going to hike and I sat down and I wrote that book that week from cover to cover. So there's a lot to be said about sometimes the length of time between what happens to us and integrating that. I'm always telling people that on retreat, don't go home and share this with everybody. You know, I, you know, a native American friend told me once I, he said, I look at people and I see that they give something away before they have it. Mm. And so can you say that again? Oh, I love that. That he looks at people and sees that we give something away before we really have it. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think of like a time on retreat or any experience that's really tender. You have to allow it time to grow. It's in bud. And what happens is if you announce it to somebody and it's muddied with their energy, with their opinion, their interpretation, and all of a sudden it it can really flatten it. And so I have learned to really let my experiences 
germinate for a long time. So for instance, what happened in Gift of the Red Bird happened in 1989, but the book was published in 1996. So it germinated. I, I, I sat with it, but it's just a good life practice because things want to speak to us from within before we start getting anybody else's opinion from without. Yeah, and then sharing it. I love that. That's such great advice. Do you believe also that stories need to be told? Like, did you have like a calling or sort of this, you know, inner feeling of, you know, I'm, I'm reading a book for a book club that's not a spiritual book. And I joined the book club on, on purpose because I, as you can see all my books here, I, I love to read spiritual things and teach, but, you know, I also think it's good to, to use my brain in other ways. And, but the book that I'm reading talks about the author was saying that the story just came to them and that authors know that if, if you don't tell it, the story will find, it'll sort of roll around and find, you know, someone else to tell the story. Not that anyone had your exact story, but did you feel that way? Sort of this, um, this nudge or. You know, I'm not sure that I did. It's just that I'm a writer at the core of me. And so I understand what I'm feeling most deeply when I write it, mm. like it comes to me in the writing. But I think I've sent every book out into the world just saying, you know, find find your place, even if it's one reader, if it's if it's one person someplace. But I think when people are going through difficult times, Yes, that there is a real importance, even if, again, it's just a one person to say that out loud, because pain needs to move and it needs to get from the inside of us to the outside. And so just even one time yeah. announcing something out loud in a safe place yeah. is really important toward healing. And you had you had mentioned that that um, and, you know, the holidays were you know in Advent right now and as the holidays approach that grief can be especially hard for people at this time of year. But um, one of the things that I loved that you talked about is that, you know, grief is energy and that it gets stuck. And, you know, it sounds to me like your process of writing was one of the ways to help you get unstuck or to, to move that energy. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it was exactly that to get it from inside of me to outside. And also in that process, you see things that if you kept it hidden inside might never have become obvious. You know, I would, I would see things or one of the things I tell people in writing retreats is to do a piece of writing and then put it away and don't look at it for six weeks and then take it out and read it again and read it out loud and in all of that process, I found that things moved. I mean, I really listened to myself. I really think that. Do I think that? I don't think I think that. Or I think there's more than that or, you know, whatever it is. Yeah, it was, it was definitely the healing modality for me. And at the beginning, I mean, I really wrote to manage pain. I mean, that was it. I had to move it. And I never thought that my first book, I never dreamed I was writing a book. I was just trying to stay sane 
and keeping this honest, honest journal. And so it was a surprise to me by many circumstances that that book ever came to be published. And I was so young when all of this started. I was in my 20s. And my first reaction, both in speaking my story and in writing that first book, were why are people so moved? Because they didn't know, like my husband and daughter who had been killed in this drunk driving accident, like why, why are people in the audience crying? And that was a huge insight to me that somebody helped me to see that the human heart, when it breaks, resonates with any other human heart and that we all hold things that probably have have never been told and so if one person articulates it what moves us is the experience common of pain absolutely absolutely and what a what a gift because it's become your ministry really it has yeah and i do remember at one point with one of my publishers saying i i don't want to do any more pain-based books or you know, a lot of my later books have have not been so centered on this experience and loss, but I I just had that feeling and she was quiet for a long time. And then she said to me, I think this is your gift. And if people resonate to such an extent that they not only enter into their own pain in hearing about yours, but see a way out, then think twice about not offering that gift. And so that was, that was it. Yeah. Yeah. So you received, you received her, her words. Um, And one one of the questions I I wanted to talk about today is I know you spend a lot of time in nature, you know, obviously it's where the red bird came from and, and, and many other signs and, and gifts along the way on our path. And, And even for me, you and I were just talking about, we both went for a walk this morning and, you know, in preparing for our podcast, I was sort of looking over things. And then at some point you just have to step away. And I know for me going for a walk for an hour with my dog and sort of taking my time and and seeing things and not listening to anything else except for, you know, nature that it's just such a gift for me. And of course, you know, I saw a red bird or two along the way today, which made me smile talking to you. But one of the things that I saw were um, just even outside my window here, these blue jays kept coming and like many of them. And it reminds me of of a family member that passed because the morning I was going to give her eulogy, I asked God to send a sign and I wanted to see a fox and a fox didn't come, but all these blue jays came. And this morning they were all out there. So I just felt like maybe she was around for, for some reason. And it just, you know, I wouldn't have noticed that otherwise. So can you talk a little bit about nature and what that has done for your own healing and for your own work? Mm-hmm. To the point that I write about in Give to the Redbird, where I really went out for three days and three nights alone in nature. And nature was just sort of a sweet backdrop to my life. I grew up in New England, and so fall is extraordinary there. But during that period of time, I reoriented, and I realized that 
I am a part of this. This is a part of me. I'm living in something larger than my house. And that has stuck. And when I came home from that vision quest, I committed for 10 years that the first hour of my morning would be my walk so that I would remember, so that I would get that reorientation kind of set, that that would be my time with God. And sometimes someone would call, I was working as a therapist then, and they would say, do you have an earlier appointment time? And I'd say, no, I already have someone. And they would think I had a client, but that was my walk with God. And I really stuck to that. And I couldn't have told you if you'd asked me five years into it, what benefit is this? I would have thought, actually, none really. I'm just, I'm just keeping the commitment that I set out to keep. But by about year seven or eight or so, I was changed. And the orientation of how I understood life, life in this form, you know, living a human life, it had really changed. And I realized you can have a conversation with everything that's outside your beautiful windows. And that that not only matters, but is intended and enlarges your view of what this life is, because there's help everywhere. I mean, just help everywhere. Yeah. And what I'm hearing is what incredible self-care to push back. And I've learned to do that the older I get is that when people want to infringe on my sacred time, because that's sacred time for you, that I used to you know, want to please people and sort of make accommodations and I would rearrange things. And I don't do that anymore because that time is, is self-care. It's time with God. It's time in nature. I also think too, in listening to you, and I don't know why I thought of this this morning, but I think that the transformation that happens in our spiritual life is very subtle. You were like, oh, I don't know why I'm doing this. But after seven years, you re- you know, you realize over time of like, wow, that's healing. That's time with God. That's where maybe your creative ideas come from. I, you know, you, you see things in nature that you would have missed. I, uh, you know, got up early the other morning and I was, I was sitting here with like a little meditation cushion and I was listening to some great horned owls, like talking, you know, before dusk. And I, you know, I don't know if everybody would love that, but if I hadn't, and I got up, I actually thought that it was 6am and it was 5am because the dog woke me up and I didn't realize how early it was until I came down. But if I hadn't gotten up that early, I would have missed that. And to, and I'm, I'm a big bird watcher. And so to me, that was just such a delight the other morning to, to have that quiet time and to sit back. And I kind of got mad when my heater started to crackle and come on because, uh, I, I was trying to uh, to have this experience. Would you think that, that people are are so used to instant gratification? We're used to just we need something now. We just click it, and Amazon something shows up, and perhaps we want the same thing with the spiritual life, or on our prayer life, or with God. And and what I'm hearing you say is that it's slow and steady, and that it takes time and commitment. Mm-hmm. I think it, it won't open in the same way Amazon does. It's a different <laughs> frequency. And the momentum in the outside life where we all live, it's a part of what's around us, is a very demanding and commanding 
energy. And in that field, it's the mind that really is in charge. And so I think when you're sitting on a cushion and you're hearing two owls communicate to one another, it's, it's not the mind where you're receiving that. And it's not the mind that is creating that. And it takes us to a place that I think ultimately is ours to get to, a, a place where there is a, I don't know, a hidden nature, an inner nature that hasn't really been fully awakened yet. But the, that's the point. And anything that can get us there is our friend. Mm-hmm. And what, what would be your suggestions for getting there? Like, how can we help people see things a little differently? Um, I think you said, we never see more than we're willing to see. I think that was a quote from, mm-hmm. from you. I mean, I think it's not a whole lot different than what we're already talking about, that there has to be an essential primary yes or a willingness to see more than just what's rushing by. I heard the late John O'Donohue once speak, and he just had an observation. He said, in Western culture, we're up to 90 miles an hour. And at 90 miles an hour, you can be up to many things, but not presence. Mm. Because in presence, in the slowing down, out in nature, inside a house, it doesn't matter. But, you know, when we shut everything else off and get still, something else begins to grow. And our likelihood then, our willingness, if it's there, is is so key so even in the in the early days of my grief i i realized at some point that my healing would begin that probably every healing begins with a yes yes i'm willing to know more than i know today yes i will take what has been given to me and and see what i can make of it and yes i'm willing to look at what's being given to me right now, even though it isn't what I wanted or what I chose. So it's those simple things that give us an access to hearing something that's very different than the morning news, which Mm -hmm. we, you know, the morning news and then the midday news and the evening news, it's just a repetition. You really just need to read it maybe you know, once, and then ask yourself, I I used to ask myself this all the time, like, what am I feeding myself, which isn't just about food, but information, and what am I reading, and what kind of conversations am I having, and that's what helps, Mm -hmm. is that kind of a a stop and a looking within. And I I am a big believer of I like to be informed, but not been bombarded all day long with the news. Like I I know there's a new virus variant going around. I know that there was a school shooting this week. I I know the details and my heart is heavy about a lot of those things. And I carry that into my prayer life. But the intention is to sort of be present, you know, fill myself up like you are. I'm you know, that self-care of that hour of, of taking that time out for yourself and then being informed, but, you know, not 
having the TV running as background noise because I, I feel like, yeah, I, it's, it becomes who I am if I, if I do that. Maybe. And not everybody has an hour in the morning, like we did this yeah. morning, yeah. you know, to walk. Yeah. But I used to tell even young women that are raising a family, it's, it's the way you fold the children's clothes when they come out of the dryer. And then it's putting that little soft stack of clothes onto each person's bed, but you can do that and be fully present to what you're doing. And it becomes then an act of love that's very nourishing. It's the way you place a plate on the table and how you've cooked that meal. Yeah. It's it's in ordinary ways. It is in ordinary ways. I had a mom, a young mom once who said that she would pray over the clothes. She was so grateful that she had the children to, you know, and that and because I laundry kind of overwhelms me. I have four kids and I I started do getting up before them when they were very little. And it, it saved my life, basically. I mean, it was an absolute lifeline just for me personally. Just, so I always say you make time for the things that are important to you mm-hmm. um, and, and you have to practice. You have to go back to it over and over again, just like at the gym. If you want to, you know, get big muscles, you can't just walk in and look at the machines and say, oh, aren't they nice and walk out. You have to stay and do the work. And, but for me personally, and I understand that people's lives are busy and, and mine is too, but it, for me personally, I needed to carve that time out for myself. And now my kids are a little older and it's, you know, it's easier. I have more free time or more time to choose what I want to do versus being people demanding time of me, like hiding on my attic steps, trying to make a phone call. And I, I remember those days and somebody pounding on the door. <laughs> And I, I also think it's, it's, again, it's a matter of being present because we live a lot of our lives in our mind, either in the past or in some imaginary future. But if you're in the shower in the morning, even if it's a quick shower and you're really present to it and present to water and what that is in this world and and those that don't have it or taking a sip of a glass of water it's i mean this can be you know a, a two second thing or you're going into a meeting and instead of going in rushing in just on time if you've driven someplace in your car i mean just for a minute you just stop and you say where am i going and who do i want to be when i enter that room how how do I want to listen? It's grabbing little moments, but they add up. Yeah. Yeah. I recently did uh, a podcast about um, Advent and being present. And we talked about um, being aware of crossing the threshold that every time you cross a threshold, the season, and what I'm hearing is you're saying the same thing is sort of like pause and think about as you enter or leave a space sort of catching yourself. Um, it's a, it's a great spiritual practice to be more present. Yeah. So one of the other things I wanted to talk to you a little bit about are, uh, encounters with other traditions. You talk a little bit about that in the book. Yeah. I have always found so much given to me by listening participating in reading about other traditions. I've been fortunate in working with people through the world that 
are sometimes from traditions that are so different from the way that I was raised. But there is a oneness in humankind. And even though our traditions are, are different and our words sometimes are different words, there is a connection that can be made at a very deep level where we no longer consider somebody the other and it's them and then it's us, but it's we are here. And these beautiful manifestations of how people lead their life and, and what brings them to a place of, of worship is, is beautiful. And even in the same tradition, people have different ways of expressing, of, of feeling devoted to something. And I give a wide, a wide bandwidth to that in my life that has really enriched me. And especially in my early years of grieving Native American traditions, because it was so earth-based and I'd had this huge experience and they have a tradition and kind of a lineage that wasn't in my family of origin. And so I could hear from them things that I wasn't hearing in my own tradition, but they applied. Um, like one of the things a, a Native American elder, when I grew up, used to give talks. He was from the Wampanoag Nation. And I remember once he said, when you speak a word, we have learned the sound never stops. And if we really understood that, we often would choose to be silent. And I, I loved that. And I loved the way he said it and the way they lived it. And another Native American story is somebody was going to be leading a retreat with me and he was a Native American. And when I arrived, the director said to me, go to the back of the chapel and just wait and he'll come and find you there. He'd like to get to know you. So I'm sitting in the back of the chapel waiting and I'm doing a laundry list in my mind. I could tell him that I've read this, that I've done that, that here are my experiences. Oh my God. He wanted to get to know me and he wasn't going to use any words. And when he came in, he stood in front of me and for 10 minutes, which is a long time, he just looked at me and he was feeling my, my presence. He was, he was feeling how he resonated with that. And at the end of the 10 minutes, he just smiled and he said, we'll, we'll do really well together. How were you feeling energetically during that? I'm so sensitive to, to, to that sort of stuff energetically. Like I can feel when I walk in a room, I can sense, sense the, uh, you want the truth. Yeah. I want the truth, please. So for the first five minutes, I was looking at him right back into his eyes, but he was a very handsome man. And I was thinking he is so good looking. Oh my gosh. He's so good looking. And then I heard myself thinking that. And then I said, and Paula, you could be doing what he's doing, which is just to sense his spirit. And is it gentle? Is it bullying? Is I mean, what what is the spirit, you know, of this man? And then I dropped into that. And I also saw 
this is somebody that will be a friend for a long, long while. And we did a lot of work together. But I wasn't raised in a home that taught me to do that. And that there was that way of listening and knowing someone, but he had been. So it was, it was a great, again, it was a teaching from a different tradition that was so important. Yeah, I think you can tell a lot about people by really looking into their eyes. There's something about that. I can see or feel warmth or, you know, or a distance feeling. Yeah, it's, it, that's interesting. I love that. And, and in the spiritual direction tradition, you know, which I'm trained in is that we're trained listeners, which is a learned craft because it's hard to do that when we're in a conversation with someone, they say something. And while they're talking, we're thinking about the answer while they're talking and, 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 and I carry it into my everyday life. It's hard to do sometimes, you know, I have to pull back and, and even in our conversation today, I'm excited to talk to you and you have to pull back and think, you know, let, let Paula, you know, speak and tell her stories. So um, listening is a great spiritual practice. I love what you said at the beginning about when you speak a word, it never so ends. It never stops. It never stops. And it's so true because especially when you say something that you regret. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Once it's, it's released, there, yeah. it, you know, it has gone out there. So if you think of this world, if what we were only speaking this world over were love and encouragement and compassion, it, this would be a completely different world. I saw Thich Nhat Hanh, do you know that name? Of course. Beautiful, beautiful um, Vietnamese Buddhist monk. And somehow one day I just saw a documentary where he gave a retreat to the members of our Congress. And it was amazing to watch him speak and they kept spanning the, the faces and it was people that we know very well. And I'm watching them as they listen to this man, but they kept the camera on when they went on a break. And so you saw some of these, again, very well-known people come up to him one by one and say to him, but this is so difficult. This, this is so difficult to really, to listen to someone and our opinions are so diverse. And Thich Nhat Hanh said, I've made this observation. You're just here because I was asked to give you a retreat. And yet you're seated on two sides of the aisle like you always are, you know, one party on this side and one party on that side. And he said, if you can't get beyond that place. And sometimes I would see in some of the congressmen or the senators in their eyes, such longing when he spoke, but the saying of, but this is very difficult, it's very difficult. And it's, it's one of the huge issues that we have in this world today. We also, my nonprofit, we, we run something we call circles and it's 12 people only. And when they come to be a part of this circle, they are asked to please not ex- say what they do for a living or anything defining about them. So they just 
that first night, everybody is sitting in the circle and, and no one knows if they're sitting next to a janitor or the president of a bank. And there is never any crosstalk. And when someone speaks, you just listen. And after the first two or three days, something happens and the space becomes very sacred and people just are able to see someone even who would have very different traditions, orientations from them, but they just are able to, to see it and get to a place of just love. Yeah, it takes away that compare and compete. You know, it takes it completely off the table. We live in such a compare and compete, at least I do, town. I'm not far from New York City, and there's lots of, you can imagine the dynamics, and it's and it's tough raising kids here, I think, with all of that. You know, where are you going to school, and what are you doing in this? And I love when I do group spiritual direction like that, because it takes all of that off the table. It's so funny, there's a girl that was in a small group of mine, and I had no idea that she's a famous actress had no idea. And I follow her on social media and I see her like at all these events and dressed up and a devoted person and so beautiful. And I just loved that about her. I had no idea. And I'm so, I used to think I'm so glad I didn't know, mm -hmm. not that I would have treated her differently, but it would have, it would have skewed maybe my own opinion. So I love that you take all of that away because then we're just like, like that encounter that you had when you were just staring in one another's eyes. It's just your, two human souls. It's you're just human. seeing the human it's soul. And what a better world it would be if we could all see through those, I believe, God's eyes in that way. You know, we are all the beloved children of God. You are, you are, you are. And there, that division that we think is our doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's beautiful. Yeah. Um, and just to go back to, um, to different traditions, I do think that it's healthy and to, to glean things from other places. So I really appreciate other traditions. And I think that there's a lot of value that we can carry over. I, I grew up half Presbyterian and half Catholic because my dad was Catholic. And so my grandparents lived in our neighborhood and would take us to mass and and all that. And then, but then as I got older, I was sort of embarrassed because I wasn't really Catholic because I hadn't gone through all of the steps, the older I was baptized, but didn't go through, you know, the, the steps. So when they would get up for communion, I would be sitting in the pew, you know, at, at 12 and friends from school would go by. And I felt so ashamed because I thought, oh, they must think I'm a sinner because, <laughs> I, I don't, I don't know. I, I, I could have it wrong, but if you forgave your sins were forgiven in the little booth, <laughs> you could go up and get communion. And then the Presbyterian church for well, all are welcome. Come, come. And I loved that when I would go with my mom's family to the Presbyterian church. So anyway, I used to be ashamed of it, but as I became an adult, I realized like, wow, I got to, I got to witness both and I can kind of take what I, what I learned you know, I love the rosary beads of my grandmothers and I, and I sit and do those sometimes in my prayer time. So I love the fact that I can borrow from the two faiths and, and make my own choices as an adult. And I, and, and I've encouraged my, my own children to do that. I've introduced them to church life, but then I feel like it's their decision to, to choose as adults, you know, where they, where they fit. In a very similar way, my dad was Catholic. 
and that's how I was raised. And my mother was Baptist. And at some point, I was very young. I realized that for Catholics, especially at that time, if you weren't Catholic, you were probably going to go to, quote unquote, hell. <laughs> and for Baptists, if you weren't Baptist, same thing. And I sat there and I looked at that and I thought, but they both really believe that they're right. And my conclusion was, so there has to be something that's greater than both of these because they can't both be, be right. And there's a better place to find. And I, you know, in our world, as we all grow, as we read, as we meet people, I mean, I think that's what pulls us, that there has to be more to know every single step of the way. There's more to know, more to understand, something greater. And we all have experienced a lot of judgment, which is the killer, in a lot of places for a lot of reasons, for a lot of things. And beyond that place of judgment is something actually that's very beautiful. It's the two owls singing yeah. in the morning. It wasn't like my voice is better than your voice or, you know, my feathers are more beautiful yeah. than your feathers. It's just you could hear the song. Yes. Yes. And I received it, you know, not in my head, but in but in my embodied. When I interviewed Joyce Rupp, she asked me if I knew who you were. And I said, well, of course. And she said, oh, I would love for you to, to reach out to her. And, and she said, I want you to ask her about the time that the two of us took a walk by the underground or in the Underground Railroad. And um, I think you and I touched on that when we did sort of a pre phone call. But um, would you would you share that story about your time with her? I mean, just the vision of the two of you together anywhere is is. Uh, it's amazing. So yes, Joyce had had walked the Camino, and she so wanted to find a similar walk in the United States that might be of real meaning to people. And the I think the U.S. Cycling Association had just created a map, which is a guess, but starting at Mobile, Alabama, where the slave ships came to port. And, and then leading it north, that this may have been some of the routes that slaves, when they were trying to escape for their freedom, found their way. And so we decided to, to use that map and, and to take that walk. I mean, this became so much bigger than I ever thought it would be. And the defining factor was that it was May in Mobile, and when we woke up that morning, a heat wave had taken over and, oh my God, it was, um, it was just beyond warm. The humidity was like 400%. And <laughs> we, we went anyway, we had on our backs, backpacks, in which we had maybe one change of clothes and some dried food. Like I will never again in my life eat dried peas ever. And we had so many dried <laughs> peas. And how long did it take you? 
Well, we, we had two weeks. Okay. So we walked for two weeks and we had strapped to that our tents and um, just kind of a sleeping sack. And what we intended to do was what the slaves had done. The runaways was to go to someone's home and ask for water. And of course, on the Underground Railroad, which was really the people, the safe homes where they could find a place for the night. We had numbers of some people and otherwise it was just a cold call. We would go up to someone's home and we would say, is there any possibility we could put our little tents in your yard tonight to be safe and just sleep here? And so that was the outline of it. It was the people that we met who had no idea who we were, that we wrote books, that we both were therapists, nothing. They knew nothing that Joyce you know, was a religious sister, nothing. We were just two middle-aged women that people could not believe were walking in a heat wave. And sort of like the people in your circle that you know. Yes, right. They they knew nothing. But the willingness and the longing, I would say, that people seem to have to have a conversation with strangers where they could just be completely vulnerable and transparent, thinking we'll never see these people again. And that was what struck us from day one until the very last day. I mean, people talked about their losses, having no idea that, you know, we knew anything about grief and they talked about their marriages. They talked about their struggles in whatever their religion was. They talked about estrangements in their family. And we just became listeners, people who are on the road. You offered them freedom. Yes. You offered them freedom. Right. Wow. On this freedom walk. And they, and like they gave. Stories and taking that energy out of the body, like you were talking about before. And they gave us a look just at humankind. I mean, there were people, there was one man, he was 90 years old. And when we reached his home, he had a big yard and we wanted to sleep there that night, but he was about to go. He had a nephew, I think, that was coming to take him to a car show. And he said, I'm so sorry, like that I'm going to miss you. But here's the key to my house. Take showers. You really need them. Use my towels. (laughs) You can sleep inside, you can sleep outside. And he said, I won't be back for a couple of days. So when you leave, just put the key under the mat. And we're like, who who are you? You know, who who are you? How is this even possible? And as we walked on the road, there were little gas stations. We were in a very rural part of Alabama. And so we always stopped at those to see if they had anything like an ice cream bar or something to, to eat. And there was so dry peas. (laughs) Right. And there were so many times when people coming in to get gas would see us. We'd been on a little news interview before we left and they said, Oh, you're the women that are walking the underground. And I mean, there were conversations every place, but what broke me into was, into the second week, we came to a little gas pump 
And we asked if they had any food and they didn't. And the man said, are you the two women that are making this walk? And we said, yes. And he picks up a pad of paper and he said, I've been getting calls for several days. And he showed us the names and it was all people who had offered us water or given us a place to sleep or let us use their yards. And he said, they're calling and calling saying, have they gotten this far yet? Are they okay? Mm -hmm back and let us know and so even bonds forming with without any details about anybody's life other than that in every life something brings somebody to their knees and in every life if you're lucky you can get yourself up and take the next step forward and begin to find your way and that's what we had shared I mean, that's what we had shared. And the last house that we went to was the last house that was possible because then it was all logging roads and it just simply wouldn't be safe. And it was a hundred year old farmhouse. And that whole night, I mean, these people heard what I had to say. I went to the door. Joyce was at the road with our our backpacks. And I just said, we are doing this in honor of people. And we just wondered, could we sleep in your yard tonight? And I mean, they opened their arms and they said, you cannot sleep in our yard. There's bad weather coming. You will sleep in with us, come in and take a shower. They drove us, it was 40 miles to the closest restaurant and bought us dinner. And the next morning insisted, just insisted that we have breakfast with them. And all we had left was a banana. And so we cut it in fours and they had put paper plates on the table. They were renovating their, their kitchen area. There were no dishes that they could find. And they put up a card table. His, his wife, the, the woman, was, was very, very ill. And she kept crying and saying, thank you for coming to our house. Thank you for allowing these conversations to happen. So on the paper plates, a quarter of a banana. The owner went out into the yard and he found a couple of eggs from the chickens and he scrambled them and took an ice cream scoop. And so everybody had that small scoop. And when we sat down, then his wife said, I, I know somewhere in the kitchen, everything was moved. You couldn't hardly enter it. She said, I know that somewhere there, I made a plum preserve a few years ago. And this big man, he goes to the entrance of the kitchen and kind of like reaches his hand in and comes up with the plum preserves. And they had one piece of bread, which they cut into fourths and spread it with the preserves. And I mean, you can't even make this up, nor can you forget it the rest of your life. And then the gentleman stood up and he held out his arms really wide. And he spoke a grace that I have heard 500 times in my life and apparently never heard it until he spoke it. <laughs> Bless us, O Lord, and these gifts which we receive from your bounty. And it was all we could do to get that small amount of food down because we were already full. Of, of something that was completely 
different. And I mean, we cried when. I, I feel teary eyed right now. I'm so glad you said that because I feel like I want to cry right now. You're such a good storyteller. Like I was in, I was there. I, I saw him pick up the preserves. It was just beautiful. Yeah. And if we had met that couple, I don't know, at a cocktail party, yeah. although I can't imagine any of the four of us being at one, or if we had had met them in a grocery store, we never even would have spoken. African-American people came up to us all the time as we walked. They pulled their cars up. Thank you for doing this. Thank you for honoring our people. What do you need? Do you need water? Would you like a ride? You know, how could we, you know, help you? I mean, it was beautiful. Well, I two things struck me from that story. And one is that that was, you know, we, we say we were giving grace or we're going to say grace and you received grace. You felt grace. You, you embodied grace in, in that meal together. And the other thing that strikes me too, is that somebody said once is that most people at the heart of them are, are good. People want to be good. They want to do good. And I think that you saw human nature at its finest yes. human hospitality at its, at its deepest, richest, you know. And human, human heart and soul at its finest. And we did a reception back in Mobile when the walk was over because there were so many people that were interested in this. And the person who opened her home to do this, the home was just filled. I mean, people were sitting on the floor and I happened to be standing next to the front door as people were coming in and I looked up and there were all the places where we'd stayed. Some of them, it would have been, you know, if we, if we'd walked, you know, two hours past where they were, I mean, it would have been a long round trip for them to come. And there they all were mm -hmm. because they wanted to know the ending of the story. And we have that capacity. And if we sat those people, Pam, down today and we said to them, what political party are you a part of? Who do you vote for? Or, you know, what's your religion and what are your beliefs and stuff? But it wasn't where we encountered one another. We might have been so far apart, but in that consciousness of just love and listening, we were able to be together in a completely different way, which I think is what's intended for us. Yes. Um, the Buddhists have a saying that the comparing mind is the last to go. <laughs> that we do that almost to the end and then we just we just drop it and you know, here we are. Yeah. Oh, that that was just that was amazing. And if you ever do it again. <laughs> I would love to come and witness that because, you know, that's, I think that that's what the heart longs for, for connection like that and for real human togetherness. And, you know, I, I that's, that's at the core of, of, of who we really are. That is the core. And we see how many obstacles there are both inside us in the mind, how many blocks there are just to having that experience. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Absolutely beautiful. So as we, as we come to the end of our time together, I just wondered, 
what actions or things in your life do you would you hope to be remembered by? I, I don't know how to answer that question. It's not something I think about. I mean, it's just like every day I would hope that I'm more and more present to what is really moving in life. And every day I, I would hope others could find the healing that I finally mm-hmm. found. I think that's legacy enough yeah. Yeah. for the earth. I mean, I tend to think that all of the other things, like you know, the numbers of books you've read or the way you serve people in this capacity or that capacity, I don't know. I don't know that I think that it matters so much other than that the loving of it matters. And I'll say this, that I spend inordinate amounts of time sometimes with emails that come in, you know, from people that are just a name and a city and they may have just lost a child or they may have lost a job or they may be really ill and stuff. And it's so many hours spent answering those emails. And I often think to myself, this matters more than the big speech you gave or the groups that, you know, thought what you did was, you know, so wonderful. It's just, it's just. It's that's your, that's the ministry. You know, that's, that's showing the, up, showing up and, and, and doing that and following through and, um, and supporting people in, in the midst of, you know, their grief because you've walked in their shoes and you can offer them some grace and some hope in the midst of it. So I love that you do that. I think that that's a really important part of, it's not about how many books or how many people have read them, you know, and you said this early on in our conversation and it struck me and it's always really been a prayer of mine. It's, you know, even with the podcast, like if I just touch one person, or shift one person's perspective or give one person hope or, um, and, and then that, and that's what I'm hearing you say is that that's all that matters. If it's just, if you sit down at the computer and help one mom who's lost a child. Or even, or even if the help isn't what we would think is real help, yes. but just that yearning heart was responded to. That's all. And then you let it go because you don't know. You don't you never know yeah. if that helped or it didn't help. I love that. You say that uh, I asked you what your words that you're living by right now in this season in your life. And you said nothing belongs to us and everything is lent. And I don't know if those were two separate statements or if that's all together. They collide together. Um, I mean, I think it was something that I learned early on and then you go into life and you forget. And now I think because of age, because of the pandemic, it just becomes more and more clear to me that we don't own anything. We're given everything. It's, it's lent for a time to, to use. And, and then it's, it's, it's over and something happens to everything that's in this room, everything you can see behind me. I mean, somebody will take that 
and either dispose of it or pass it on. I mean, it's just, it becomes, I don't know, somehow less important what it is that we thought we once had. It was just something we used, including the body. I mean, just yeah. a vehicle that we had yeah. at the time that we were here. So, yeah, it's very present to me now. Yeah. And I, I think that the nothing belongs to us when I read, you wrote something like that in the book. Oh, because I think raise and to to bring up for however long, you know, she would live. And it completely changed because I was pregnant when she died. It completely changed how I felt about the child that six months later was born because we treat a gift differently than we do a possession. You hold it more lightly. Yeah. Just you went out for, for a minute. I don't know if it recorded it, but, but that's what stayed with me was that, yeah, you treat it as a gift and not a possession. And I think when I read that as a young mom, it stuck with me because I've, you know, and as I come to the tail end, my youngest is a senior in high school. And as I come to the tail end of, of all the mothering that I've done is that, you know, to, to let them fly out of the nest and, and do their own thing is hard, but, but also beautiful to witness and to know that they weren't possessions, but they were, they are, they are, and were gifts. Yeah. So thank you for that too. Um, and thank you for this time together. This has just been amazing. I really uh, in, enjoy talking to you and, it just has flown. I mean, it really yeah, has it flown. did fly by. It did. I was a little nervous at first because <laughs> just, you know, just because I was ang- feeling excited, anxious about talking to you again. You know, we got right into that flow. So I felt like there was a lot of grace in it. And well, thank yeah. you again. Yeah, this was well, a thanks real for the opportunity, you know, really to, you know, to do this and maybe people overhearing a conversation that kind of like the people on the underground railroad trail you know like they can just be part of a conversation even by listening to it that touches something exactly and that's that's the hope i mean that was the prayer wasn't it the beginning share Mm -hmm. what is needed to move hearts and i think that we did we definitely covered that today so thank you I'm Pam Rotelli-Robertson, and you have been listening to Talking Joy, talks that help you realize your value while creating authentic connections with others. For more information about our talk today or to get in touch, you can find us at TalkingJoy.org. And to keep the encouragement going, you can also follow Talking Joy on Instagram and Facebook. Simple, joyful, fun. Thanks for listening. This is Talking Joy.